This week on the Rail Splitter, the Abraham Lincoln Podcast, it is part two of our coverage of the 1864 presidential election. the Abraham Lincoln Podcast. My name is Jeremy. With me today are Rail Splitter Nick. Oh, hey. Mid-drink there, people. I apologize. Hopefully your cell phones are fully charged. This is going to be the shit. <laughs> and Rail Splitter Mary. Hey, Rail Splitters. So, welcome to another episode of the Rail Splitter. It is part two of our 1864 election coverage. If you do tune into us every week, thank you for your patience with this episode because we did a uh, kind of a different episode in the middle of part one and part two of the 1864 election. So you've been waiting on the edge of your collective seats for us to finish this. Uh, our coverage of the 1864 election because it did spill over into two episodes. Uh, but in all seriousness, thank you for uh, tuning in to the second part. Uh, we did chat a little bit about the drama that is going on at the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Library and Museum. It doesn't look, and I haven't paid too, too close attention, but it doesn't look like there's a whole lot of new news coming out of that uh, scenario down in Springfield, which leads me to believe that uh, no news means no change, that they're probably still um, kind of dealing with the aftermath of moving on from Dr. Cornelius. I haven't yet to see a rebuttal from Dr. Cornelius, so I think all is the same down in Springfield, uh, so we will keep you posted for that. I will be down there again in November of this year, so I will let you know if there's any changes at the museum that are, that are at least noticeable. And then, of course, we will probably do everything we can to get a couple folks from down there on the show. Not to talk about this issue necessarily, but just to talk about the museum in general and different things going on with it. Well, there was a, we forgot to mention last week, I saw, there was a state representative, I can't think of the name, who was uh, calling for some hearings. And then I read that that wouldn't happen until after the midterms. Um, so, uh, possibly in November. We might have to make a trip. Does that stuff open to the public? We'll have to be right there on the floor. Yeah, well, yeah why not? Um, in Illinois, it's not actually a midterm. It's like the, the oh, yeah, election because we, 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 we potentially may have a new governor uh, in Illinois. And there's a, there's a good gubernatorial election since we were talking elections today. And then um, quite a lot of state house members are running for election as well in November. So... It has been an intense week for um, politics, as I'm sure everyone is aware, um, and Senate hearings and court appointments and um, things along those lines. So I'm sure your water cooler conversations have been full of that kind of thing. Uh, I didn't see any direct linking connections, although there's a linking connection, I believe, in just about everything. Uh, we did talk a little bit about how Lincoln did appoint Chase uh, to the bench in a move that was seen as one without any controversy. Um, and, of course, Chase was a dedicated abolitionist and acted thusly on the court as well. 
Um, and as Chief Justice of the United States um, did what he could do to advance freedom in the ways that he could on the Supreme Court. Um, but uh, at any rate, um, once again, as we do with most weeks, we see uh, the current president carrying in himself that is very, very anti-Lincoln in his uh, mannerisms, speech, um, regard for other people, and the like. So, which is always depressing for me. So, perhaps we can move on from that. Um, moving on to the election of 1864. Unless either one of you saw a Lincoln, um, Lincoln news story that came across this week. Uh, yeah, Kanye West. Tell me more. Uh, you haven't seen this? I don't. Uh, I saw him dressed Barack up as like a juice Obama bottle. Might not have been the first black president. It might have been Abraham Lincoln. That's what Kanye West said. What? It sure is. Lincoln is like conspiracy. Some people think that he might have been black. You've heard that right. I can't say Lincoln was black or white. So Kanye, you know, uh, being. Kanye, I decided his art is no longer music. It is trolling. He has become the world's first pop cultural troll artist. Um, I can see that. The word. Yeah. Um, but I actually ran into a guy, too, when I was doing the event for the Vet Project. And he also told me that Abraham Lincoln was black. Um, and he was just one of six black presidents we've had. So... Um, I've been, yeah, this isn't the first time I hear this. And then I guess the story goes that there is a rumor that on uh, Lincoln's mom's side um, is, it's never been proven. There's no evidence showing it. So it is a rumor that's been out there. Um, so Kanye, I, I don't know how he came across it or um, he's picked up on it. And I've actually talked to somebody in person about that very thing. So I don't know if you guys got any thoughts on it, but. Uh, yeah, you know, Kanye, what, maybe we'll make a song about Lincoln. Oh, that's, he's, he is, you, you're right, Nick, he's a total troll. <laughs> yeah, it's like performance art at this point. Yeah. Um, my thoughts on that are, um, yeah, Lincoln was white. Uh, I believe it's pretty, pretty well, uh, easy, pretty easy to establish and confirm with the horse historic record. Um, beyond that, if you want to get technical, I suppose, I think you can kind of get into the fact that uh, race is largely a social construct. So if, you know, Lincoln was elected president and uh, essentially ran his life as a white person and, you know, was never enslaved and um, didn't really directly experience life as a black person, um, you know, whether or not he had a little bit of um, black ancestry or African ancestry, I don't think matters, um, because he led his life, um, for all purposes as a white man, as far as we know, I don't think there's any examples of him living it otherwise. Um, although he, you know, Michael Burlingame certainly, uh, holds the argument that he had just a sliver of a taste of, um, slavery when he worked for his father for nothing, essentially, um, and and then saw slavery um, on his trips south and when he saw, um, you know, on, on his riverboat trips working for his father. So uh, in that regard, uh, maybe, a, maybe a little bit, but I think that that's pretty absurd, and I agree. Um, I used to be really into Kanye back in the uh, late registration college dropout days, but he seems to have... Um, 
I don't know. I'm just not not seeing it. Maybe maybe I'm too. Maybe I just don't understand it. But uh, don't understand the performance there. But I'm not seeing it at all. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I, I yeah, I, I don't understand. I like yeah. I, like he tries to jump in like these social conversations, and all he does is he claims he's uniting people, but this creates more division. So. Um, and it's a shame somebody with this platform um, kind of continues to create more division as opposed to uniting people, um, which he has a platform to maybe make some headway on that. But it was mm-hmm. in the news. Thought it was kind of interesting. Thought I'd throw it in there. Um, so, yeah. That's where we're at. Wow. That's, that's crazy. <laughs> Okay, so that uh, brings us to the uh, our topic for today, uh, the 1864 election. Um, I know Kanye also talked about abolishing the 13th Amendment or not needing it anymore. We'll just ignore that because otherwise we'll go I on this big... Fair. Yeah, <laughs> we'll just pretend like you didn't say that and give him yeah. no more airtime than we already have. So, uh, oh, I got a question for Mary real quick. Has okay. Drake said anything controversial about Canadian history this week? No. All right, Kanye Zero. Before we started recording this evening, Nick was throwing all kinds of Canadian stereotypes in Mary's direction, uh, and he just kind of continued the trend being like, oh, are we talking about rappers? We must then ask our resident Canadian about Drake. the Canadian one. So uh, the 1864 election, we've talked about Lincoln's uh, path to the nomination, which, as we established last week, was no sure thing. Uh, in 19th century politics, it was not a guarantee at all for a president to get his party's nomination uh, for re-election. Lincoln did that in a number of ways, uh, using the Civil War as um, an obvious major issue where they needed to um, maintain leadership, his leadership. He kind of appeased some of his um, rivals, specifically Chase. Um, by um, handling his threats to resignation, accepting his resignation, and eventually appointing him to the Supreme Court as Chief Justice. So he uh, does have the nomination at this point in our story for Part 2, and now he is taking on George McClellan. So uh, let's talk a little bit about McClellan. Uh, We've talked with him uh, at great length uh, from a military perspective, uh, both joking and otherwise. I mean, I think the jokes about him uh, hold true that he uh, didn't, you know, was quite a reluctant fighter. Um, I do think that the degree to which he prepared the Army of the Potomac often gets overlooked, and he does deserve some credit for that. Um, I think that his, uh, you know, we armchair psychologists have certainly deconstructed his letters to his spouse quite a lot and found quite a lot of hubris there but that wasn't private correspondence who knows you know i don't think he was a humble man by any means but perhaps that gets a little bit overstated but then you know he does have aspirations for the white house um and he does have a you know fairly long political career um eventually serving a term as the governor of new jersey well after the war in the 1870s and early 1880s. But as far as his work uh, leading up to the election of 1864, 
Um, he doesn't do a whole lot militarily after um, the early 1860s and 1862 when Lincoln finally severs ties with him more permanently, at least as far as his command, you know, him being a commander of the United States Army. Um, and then he, you know, after Antietam, um, becomes the Democratic Party nomination for re-election. Um, so, Mary, I know you prepared quite a lot of show notes for this. Tell us a little bit about McClellan's approach to the his candidacy for okay. the presidency. So, um, McClellan was he was up against a few different people for the Democratic nomination. Uh, most notably, Thomas H. Seymour, who is former governor of Connecticut. And there was three others, Lazarus W. Powell, who is a senator from Kentucky, Franklin Pierce, former president, and Horatio Seymour, who was governor of New York. Um, all three of those gentlemen declined to be nominated. So McClellan ends up getting the nomination and his running mate, his, the VP nomination nominee is George H. Pendleton, who is a politician from Ohio and a peace Democrat. And McClellan's a war Democrat. And this is the problem with the Democrat Party is they are very divided. So the convention was held in Chicago, Illinois on August 29th, 1864 in the same building. So the wigwam where Abraham Lincoln was nominated four years earlier for the um, to be the Republican candidate. And the Democrats were after a strong candidate who could unify the party since they were so divided. So that's why they nominated pro-war Democrat McClellan and an anti-war or peace Democrat, George Pendleton. And Pendleton was also friends with a very well-known Copperhead, and we've mentioned him on the show a few times, Clement Vallandigham. And at this time, Vallandigham is back from his short exile in Canada. Because um, he got, Lincoln basically said, you need to leave the Union. So he went down to the Confederacy for a while, and then he went to Canada. Um, but he came back. So things are not stable, as I said, within the Democratic Party. They're bitterly split between the War Democrats and the Peace Democrats. So just briefly, the War Democrats, they support the war. They support the Union, um, and they, for the most part, reject the policies of the Peace Democrats, and they wanted a much more aggressive policy toward the Confederacy. The Peace Democrats are divided into two. The Moderates, who support the war and wanted a negotiated peace, and the Radicals, who are also known as the Copperheads, of which Vallandigham was a very well-known Copperhead. Um, so they're partly called this um, by the Republicans after the venomous snake, but also because the Copperheads wore as a badge um, the Lady Liberty head off the coin. And that's how they, they would proudly wear this. Um, they had declared the war to be a failure and they wanted immediate end to the hostilities. They saw Lincoln as a tyrant and they are also anti-abolition. So the party platform was written by, oh, sorry. It's important to note um, that the Democrats, so if we go back to 1860, I think this, this peace Democrat, war Democrat dynamic is important to know because when you go back to the 1860 election, again, you have a fractured Democratic Party um, where uh, the standard bearer in many ways was um, Stephen A. Douglas, um, but because of the divisive nature of just the country in general at the time, you have John C. Breckinridge emerge as the Southern Democrat, you have John Bell as a Constitutional Union Party, which is kind of also kind of coming out of 
what looks like maybe the ashes of the Democratic Party, and then Stephen A. Douglas as the Northern Democrat uh, Democratic Party. Then you fast forward to 1864, the election we're talking about today, and again you have a bitterly divided um, Democratic Party. Now the Republican Party experiences similar division as we kind of move forward. Um, between 1864 and 1868, you'll see radical Republicans kind of also splintering. Um, but the Democrats really don't unite in a significant way uh, for many years, at least on the presidential stage, because these divisions tend to be a little bit more regional. Um, they they've been they they get trounced in the electoral college all the way up until Hayes and Tilden um, in the. Um, 1876 election. So it's not really until 1876 that the Democrats actually kind of unite in a way around one candidate. Um, and that is when they actually come back and win the popular vote for the first time since uh, 1856 with James Buchanan. So this splintering of parties, I think, is interesting to note, especially as you look now, in 2016, you saw a definite, um, or maybe just the beginnings of not necessarily a split in the Democratic Party or in the, you know, um, in, in just parties in general. But now, you you know, we, we see there's very much the, the Republicans call it the base. They have the base and then they have the rest of the party who's more moderate, um, so-called base. Um, the Democrats tend to have um, their progressive, the progressive wing, which leans close to democratic socialism, the Bernie-type movement, and then you have more traditional Democrats. So this is not anything that's gone away, but it was definitely more pronounced uh, in the in in the mid 19th century. Um, probably at its height in 1860, when you literally had different candidates branching off into different parties. Um, this effort in 1864 to unite by having um, a war Democrat at the top of the ticket and a peace Democrat at the bottom, um, as we'll talk about, wasn't very successful. Um, interesting, just from a political history standpoint, to think about, you know, how would it have looked if Hillary Clinton won, you know, did win the nomination and then her running mate was not Tim Kaine, but maybe was Bernie Sanders or somebody that would be looked at as more of the liberal side of the Democratic Party. How would that have worked. Um, I don't believe it would have worked well. And if 1864 is any indication, it would not have because, you know, this, you know, trying to unite a split party by, by having one at the top of the ticket, one at the bottom, doesn't always work that great, or at least it didn't in McClellan's, McClellan's case. Oh, and the party platform was written by Clement Vlandingham. And he argued that Lincoln had been unable to restore the Union by experiment of war and called for immediate end to hostilities and to negotiate a settlement with the Confederacy. So it's basically a peace platform. And this is where I, I find this quite interesting. And I just, it kind of, it really makes me think like it was rejected by McClellan, but they still kept him as the nominee. Um, and many started just being treasonous and what McClellan wanted was a different party platform. He wanted a continuation continuation of the war, restoration of the Union, but not necessarily the abolition of slavery. Um, and this made his campaign very inconsistent and difficult 
a lot of political cartoons, there's one that I looked at that shows him as literally having two faces. Um, so again, showing the division within in the Democratic Party itself. Um, and in his letter accepting the nomination, McClellan stated that he could not face his gallant comrades in the Army and Navy and tell them we had abandoned that union for which we had so often periled our lives. So he's gone against what the party platform was, but I think the damage had already been done by how just the divisions and what they were running on that it was, you know, people started to see it as treasonous. Like, how can we have a union and negotiate? By this point, the war is being, it's being fought, you know, slavery is the known cause. It's being fought to end slavery now. Um, I, I one, agree with you 100% about the, it's the party platform that sealed their fate, I think. Oh, yeah. So, especially with McClellan as the candidate, because, I mean, he just comes across, I mean, as you're saying, he does not support that at all. He was part of no. the assault. So, when he's trying to appeal to those peacetime Democrats, he's not going to come off as authentic. And when he's trying to appeal to the wartime Democrats, why did you agree to this platform? So yeah, and, it sealed their fate. So it's really this guy like the 1860 election. I mean, in, in a lot of ways, the election, the presidential election was sealed with the Democratic primaries and how they played out. And specifically, you know, this argument over the platform uh, that they were going to run on. And you can see a lot of that in the political cartoons that, that go on. Like they're, they're called the political Siamese twins, which it's. Uh, Pendleton and McClellan standing together and they've got this kind of tie between them so they're, they're banded together and there's soldiers saying to McClellan that they would vote for him if he were not tied to the Copperheads um, because they don't want to think they've wasted their efforts and then there's um, Pendleton who's got Vallandigham and Seymour talking to him saying that they'll have peace if McClellan's elected so it, it's two they're running on it's like two different platforms mm -hmm. it seems so like, I don't know how McClellan could possibly have come across as genuine to either side. Yeah, and that, well, and I think the political strategy behind it, because um, I think a key component of this election is that you don't have the South. Like, you know, the South is actively in rebellion and considers themselves to be a separate yeah. country. So, looking at the political or the electoral map from 1860, uh, the Republicans in Lincoln carried every single state that stayed in the Union except for. Uh, Kentucky and Missouri, um, and excuse me, Kentucky, Missouri, Maryland, and Delaware. So four uh, relatively small states out of the entire group of states that are going to be voting in the election in 1864. So they've got to flip essentially half the North from the, from who they voted for in 1860 versus who they voted for in 1864. So I don't think a whole lot has changed from 1860 to now where flipping a state from one election to the next is is challenging. Um, and when you look at the Electoral College um, from 1864, when it comes down, and not to kind of get too far ahead of ourselves, but they flipped zero states. So zero states that had that Lincoln won, that Lincoln won every single state that he won in 1860, again in 1864, plus he also gained Missouri and he gained West Virginia, which was now a new state, uh, which obviously had lost when it was Virginia. So um, I think what they may have been trying to do, or at least if I were the political strategist, um, 
you know, if I was the David Axelrod of the McClellan campaign to say like, all right, this is what we need to do. We need to win Pennsylvania. We need to win New York. Um, and then hopefully pick up a couple other states, you know, looking at the electoral map, if, you know, Ohio, Pennsylvania, and New York are almost enough to win the whole ball game, um, if they can carry some other states. But um, you're talking flipping some states that were, um, that went in 1860 to Abraham Lincoln. Quite a tall order, and I, my belief is that they, they, they tried to create a platform that was going to be appealing to enough people to do that. And when you try to please everybody all the time, you end up pleasing none of the people most of the time. So um, that's kind of how I feel it, it shook down. But from a, from just from a purely political standpoint, not looking at right and wrong, slavery, peace, war, just just based on politics, if they wanted to win the election, it was a hugely monumental task because they had to flip all of those states. Um, also, interestingly... Um, and I don't know how this happened, but, uh, and, we, and, you know, we can kind of get into it, but uh, there were 10 electoral votes cast from Tennessee for Lincoln, and there were seven from Louisiana for Lincoln. I doubt those were the most Democratic of elections, um, because I'm fairly sure that, uh, you know, most of the people probably refused to participate in the election because they didn't view themselves mm -hmm. as Americans. Um, yet nonetheless, he got those 17 electoral votes. So, um, that was hugely, uh, that made it even more of a monumental test to overcome, but interesting that, that of the folks who did vote in those two States and the fact that they did send electors to the electoral college that supported Lincoln, I think is important. Yep. You know, what I found funny about McClellan's nomination, so he wasn't there and then they're like. So they nominate him, and guess what? They have to freaking wait on the dude to accept the <laughs> nomination. Like literally, he had to wait. Like they were, like I was reading something. They were like, kind of complaining because he was taking forever to accept the nomination. <laughs> Only McClellan could do that. He accepted it just last week. Yeah, that would surprise me at all. What a joker. <laughs> Just a side note, um, I actually listened to a three-part podcast about McClellan um, on the blue and the gray just to kind of get to know him a little bit better in preparation for this show and just in general. He's actually an interesting guy, despite all his, you know, despite as much as I razz him and everybody else does. Um, but yeah, it was very interesting reading about how he's running on almost a completely different party platform. And I mean, the, the political cartoons, as I said, they totally reflect that. And now going into, um, you know, after Lincoln's been nominated in June of 1864, so you have McClellan getting nom nominated end of August. August is not a great month for Lincoln at all. Um, so Grant was not making much headway as was expected. Um, and he'd been unable to defeat General Lee and his army of Northern Virginia. They're essentially in like a stalemate and there was like four different Union defeats. There was in Mansfield, Louisiana, Cold Harbor, Virginia. There was the Battle of the Crater, also in Virginia. And there was Kennesaw Mountain in Georgia. And um, in his book, 1864, Lincoln at the Gates of History, Charles Brayson Flood states that the national debt was at its highest, the public credit at its lowest, and the Treasury was running out of money paying for a war that appeared to be in a stalemate. So things are not 
really looking the greatest. And on August 23rd, 1864, Lincoln calls his cabinet together to sign a letter without reading it. And it is a memorandum committing the administration to devote all its powers and energies to help bring the war to a successful conclusion. And Doris Kearns Goodwin in her book, um, Team of Rivals, um, she states that she argues that no Democrat would be able to resist the immense pressure for an immediate compromise peace. Slavery would thus be allowed to remain in the South and even independence might be sanctioned. Um, so basically, Lincoln just wants to help this president-elect get the war done, get as many slaves up from the South as possible before the new administration takes over and there's a possible severing of the Union. Like, that's how it, I think he sort of saw the situation as being that way. And, and he said, this morning, as for some days past, it seems exceedingly probable that this administration will not be reelected then it will be my duty to so cooperate with the president-elect as to save the union between the election and the inauguration, as he will have secured his election on such ground that he cannot possibly save it afterwards. I think that's huge. I, you know, I've read that quote a couple times, and the gravity of that and the, and the how definite he is that if he, you know, not only did he fear losing, but he knew that if he lost, the whole thing could be lost. Um, I think at least I, I believe I agree with Lincoln in this case, and I think it really shows the importance of this election. Uh, the entire Civil War, according to that very quote, but and then according to so you know obviously according to Lincoln, uh, the fate of the Union hinged upon this election, uh, because in Lincoln's views, no one you know just to kind of paraphrase or summarize what Mary just read. Um, if he lost the election, someone would have to have won it by promising that the war would be over, that the hostilities would stop. Um, so that was um, Lincoln resolving to get to get it done. And it, and it turned out that maybe, and who knows how the political climate would have played out, but the war was largely over by the time Lincoln was sworn in for a second term, just by the way the summer of 65 went in the spring of, uh, sorry, the summer of 64 um, into the spring of 65 went, um, but it would have been fascinating to see if, if, if everyone knew that there was a peace, you know, peace Democrat or, you know, depending on who they nominated at that time when Lincoln saw whoever was going to win, um, you know, what that could have, how that could have shaken out. It's interesting to think about. And so another interesting thing about the campaign is neither Lincoln or McClellan campaigned in person. It's not like it is today. Um, and then a few days after McClellan is nominated, um, Lincoln receives some very good news. And it is Atlanta is ours and fairly won. So General Sherman. Mary's got to bring up her boyfriend. Him. Yeah, yeah, I got to bring him in. <laughs> it's important in this. Um, he was victorious in securing Atlanta. And this is, this is, this is, the news that the north needed and then grant started having you know more victories um sheridan as um i'll bring up in a few minutes he had a victory too so there's good news that starts coming in and also too the democrats just they don't have it to secure a vote at all like so many people are starting to see it as treasonous like soldiers can't justify voting for mcclellan because why are you going to vote for somebody that you fought for this long and that hard and it's clear what the reason is that you're fighting now how could you justify voting 
for him. Um, so on November 8th, 1864, Lincoln wins the election. And it is a landslide victory. And he's the first president to win a second term since Andrew Jackson. Republicans make major gains in the House and they continue to hold the majority in the Senate. And they took every state except for Kentucky, New Jersey, and Delaware. And Kansas, West Virginia, and Nevada participated for the first time. And elections were held in Union-occupied military districts in Louisiana and Tennessee. Um, but I found something that said Congress did not allow these electoral mm -hmm. votes to count. Yeah, and that's accurate. And I, and I did also misspeak. Uh, New Jersey was one state that did flip. Uh, Lincoln won New Jersey in 1860, and then McClellan, it's McClellan's home state. Yeah. Um, and McClellan won it in 1864. Uh, there were a couple elements. I mean, the Electoral College, it was a complete landslide. Uh, like 91% of the Electoral College votes went to Abraham Lincoln. Um, I do think it's important to note that New York was quite close. It was less than a percentage point split, the difference between Lincoln and McClellan. And that was the biggest state uh, with 33 electoral votes. So that could have made a, a quite a difference. Um in the election, but when you look at Ohio, uh, which had uh, 21, quite a lot of electoral votes, not even close. Uh, it's a 13-point uh, difference, roughly 13-point. Pennsylvania, second biggest with 26. Um, a little bit closer, it was about a three-point margin, uh, but still that's fairly, you know, I mean, you could probably consider that swing-ish state um, with Pennsylvania. So, you know, if, if it had gone a little bit differently, you're looking at, um, you know, 60, 59 electoral votes. If Pennsylvania and New York uh, go to McClellan, that would have made it a little bit closer. Um, but the there weren't a whole lot of other states that were really all that close. Um, Connecticut, very, very small um, number of electoral votes. So um, Lincoln had a pretty strong hold on uh, the electoral part of the election, um, the popular vote, it was about a 10-point uh, margin, uh, which is pretty big. That's a pretty big um, popular vote margin there. Um, I do think the most important and interesting statistic to come out of this election is um, out of the 40,000, and that's not a lot. Uh, 40,000 is not a lot of um, Army votes. But out of the 40,000 uh, Army votes cast, Lincoln had nearly 76% of the vote. So that is huge and, and says a lot about the election, certainly in the eyes of the enlisted men um, and, and the, the folks who were fighting, um, especially when McClellan, who was actually fairly popular with his troops because, you know, his reluctance kept them safe in many ways, and he also prepared them uh, to fight. Um, but that 76% of the enlisted men, I think, shows that support. And, you know, keeping in mind that they obviously corresponded with their families at home, and, they, you know, they had a little bit of a sphere of influence there. So their support of Lincoln, I think, uh, is difficult to underestimate or under yeah. underemphasize. Yeah, I think that's where that party platform comes in, just killed McLeod, especially mm -hmm. amongst the troops. And, uh, you know, Lincoln made sure to, um, because a lot of them had to go back. There was, like, no absentee ballot stuff. So, and, you know, they worked and given, you know, them time to go back and to vote. Um, and I know he urged a lot of his generals to make sure to do that so he could get that, what he felt was a very important vote, which it was. 
and each individual state actually determined how the vote of the soldiers would be handled. So Wisconsin was the first to permit their soldiers to vote in the field through absentee ballots. Okay. And from there, California, Connecticut, Iowa, Kentucky, Maine, Maryland, Massachusetts, Michigan, Minnesota, Missouri, New Hampshire, New York, Ohio, and Pennsylvania all followed suit soon after. Um, Illinois, Indiana, and New Jersey, which all had a Democratic-controlled state legislature, did not pass this legislation. Same with Delaware, Rhode Island, Nevada, and Oregon. But these soldiers were often granted leave so they could return home to vote. So just as you said, Nick, that that was encouraged. And um, just as, you know, just again, getting back to this, you know, how could they vote for McClellan? I found a really good quote that um, sums it up. A vote for McClellan would invalidate all the sacrifices that they and their comrades had made. Yeah, and I think that that Battle of Atlanta is so important. And Lincoln, you know, there's a there's a few battles I think they get potentially maybe overemphasized because mm-hmm. um, there's so many of them just because of their size. But I think the timing of a lot of battles is important. Um, when Lincoln needed desperately needed victories, he he tended to get them. And the timing of Atlanta served very well for the election. The timing of Antietam helped with the Emancipation Proclamation. Uh, the timing of uh, Vicksburg and Gettysburg helped because of, I mean, those were those were a little bit more um, significant militarily, but also um, that was kind of the turning point of the war um, where, uh, you know, I think if the feeling in the country and the feeling in the ranks was that they were kind of in this quagmire, kind of similar to maybe the feeling in Vietnam, where, because um, I think that definitely was an argument in Vietnam as well. Like, if if we quit, what was all this for? And then I think the overwhelming feeling over time was, what's all this for? You know, there wasn't, you know, that answer kind of started to get more and more elusive. And then, you know, giving the peace movement a lot more energy in this particular case, had the had the war kind of gotten into it like that quagmire where it was, we're just trading huge casualties for very little gain. Um, World War One's probably another similar example. Um, if we're just trading these huge casualties for very little gain, what's it all for? But you have a victory like Atlanta. You have victories um, where you know with Grant, and it, uh, victory became visible victory became uh conceivable the end was in sight so then that whole argument of what was this all for is way more has a way a lot more weight um because it doesn't feel like this never-ending sacrifice now it feels like we're you know we're close to the goal line here um if we quit now it's it's simply it's simply to quit it's not it's it doesn't it's not going to serve a purpose long term um yeah like atlanta was just you know it came along at the right time as you said jeremy and you know i don't know how much sherman realized it at the time but when in his memoirs which he wrote years after he does state that you know that he realized that there was this obviously he knew the election was going on but he said that the democratic platform who's or democratic party whose platform was that the war was a failure and that it was better to allow the South to go free to establish a separate government whose cornerstone would be slavery. Um, so Sherman saw that the success of Atlanta was, it was political as well as to to be that much closer to ending the war. And he does, I think he, 
he says the brilliant success at Atlanta filled that requirement and made the election of Mr. Lincoln certain. So of course, I mean, he's writing his own memoirs. He's going to be <laughs> tooting his own horn for this. Like there were other factors that played into it too, but certainly, you know, just that timing of Atlanta was, I think a good morale boost for the North. Um, and not only that, but you have Sheridan in the Shenandoah who basically wipes them clean of the rebel armies. He's destroying crops and livestock. He's basically just doing what Sherman is about to do on his march starting in November. Um, and that too was kind of the morale boost that the, the North needed. And there's actually just an interesting article I found was there was a poem written called Sheridan's Ride, which is about um, Sheridan and Cedar Creek and how he rode his horse Rienzi really quickly um to get to where he needs to go and there's a smithsonian magazine article titled union colonel Phil philip sheridan's valiant horse a young horse helped phil sheridan win the election win the day in shenandoah valley and made famous by a poem helped abraham lincoln win re-election so there's all these different things that you know people say factor into him winning the election um and then he also i mean i think too a huge part of it is this division in the democratic party and, you know, how can you, how can, especially a soldier vote for McClellan and just people seeing the, the platform as being treasonous. Yeah, I agree. Yep, I agree. So um, I think um, other key elements, um, and I know that the Spielberg film does an excellent job of showing this, but key elements of that 1864 election are that um, you have a whole another host of appointments that Lincoln can make because the appointments, the political appointments he made in 1860, those are up. Uh, so he can appoint new people and he uses those quite a lot in the wheeling and dealing to get the 13th, 14th and 15th amendments um, passed. So um, that's, I, I think that's not nothing. Um, had he lost the election, not only um, does he lose the war potentially, but he loses the opportunity to do that. Uh, so, you know, with that come the spoils of the, the winning the election. And he uh, doesn't make a whole lot of uh, changes at the cabinet level, which I think we like to you know pay attention to a lot more. Uh, but he does make, you know, use those appointments to help out um, different members of the House who lost their seats. Uh, while they're in that lame duck stage, he negotiates with many of them to get their support for the amendment in exchange for political appointments. Um, some, you know, there's that great speech by Thaddeus Stevens delivered by Tommy Lee Jones at the end about how, you know, Lincoln used all kinds of, you know, dastardly met methods to, to get that amendment passed and how beautiful, you know, he obviously, um, Tony Kushner, I think it's Tony Kushner's dialogue is very beautiful and colorful and painting those contrasts of, you know, using amoral act acts to, to pass this beautiful thing. Um, so that, that, you know, that speech kind of encapsulates how he, how he used that, um, the political appointments to his advantage. Um, and unfortunately, as we know, Lincoln does not get to serve very much of that second term. Um, he was elected to it. We do have obviously the second inaugural, but, um, in those days, the president's term started in March. And we know Lincoln died in April, so it was very, very um, short time in his second term before Andrew Johnson takes over. I do think that that was a key, key decision, possibly mistake that Lincoln made. 
where he chose as his running mate Andrew Johnson. Uh, Lincoln was not no different than politicians are now, where that choice of, choice of running mate is largely designed to help win elections, maybe more so than help govern. Um, and when Andrew Johnson became president, um, he just didn't quite have have what it took in many ways. Um, that said, I don't know if there's any indication that Hannibal Hamlin did either or any other um, potential vice presidential candidate um, that had emerged. Um, I don't know if it would have gone any better with anyone else. Um, I certainly think it would have had Abraham Lincoln not been assassinated, but that's a conversation for another day. So that is our two-part coverage of the 1864 election. Uh, we are thankful that it went the way that it did, and I think it tells us more about the war and tells us more about um, Lincoln's political genius maybe than it does about elections themselves um, because obviously this is a unique election in American history because it is the only one where not all of the states participated because of a rebellion, clearly. Um, and it was, you know, one of the few mid-war elections uh, and definitely a unique one in the 19th century because it was one of the few where the incumbent not only won his party's nomination, but then also won the general. Um, so Lincoln definitely uh, and deservedly uh, won, won two terms. Uh, unfortunately, didn't get to serve them both. Every week on the Rail Splitter, we do have two uh, featured um, segments. The first one is called Of the People by the People, where we share social media posts that we enjoyed from the week. Um, I will start this week. Um, I know uh, we often, often, often bring up his posts because they're so great, but I'm going to take it in a little bit of a different direction. I'm going to... Um, bring up a tweet from at Mr. Underscore Lincoln, who we refer to as Lincoln Belongs to the Ages. He is a wealth of brilliant tweets, but I'm going to change the game a little bit because I'm going to talk about one of his tweets that are not about Abraham Lincoln, the Civil War, or politics or current events, which I like all of his tweets on those. This one's about sports. Uh, he tweeted, and I think that this is important and Cub fans need to take notice. He said, this lifelong Cleveland fan can't feel too brokenhearted today for Cubs fans. You've got you got to experience a World Series title in your lifetime at my team's expense. I may never get to experience one. Sorry. Uh, Mary was kind enough to offer condolences to both Nick and I after our Cubs lost in the middle of the night last night or this morning, I guess, um, which is always heartbreaking. But um, I think we Cub fans need to get over it. Um, we did get to see a World Series. I've said my whole life I only wanted to see one. It was the best moment of my life um, other than you know kids and all that obvious stuff um, the fact that we got there is amazing and I've been telling people all day remember those lean horrible years when being a Cub fan was about building character because we had our hearts broken year in and year out and then the end of the year was always an optimistic time because we got to say maybe next year well that is today maybe next year um, we're spoiled. We're living in the golden age of Cub fandom, and it is beautiful. Let's not get too carried away with uh, feeling sorry for ourselves because you have people who, you know, like Cleveland fans who have been hurting for quite some time. As much as I dislike Cleveland and think that Chief Wahoo is, you know, horribly offensive, um, I can empathize with their fans who have really struggled a lot, and they are a loyal fan base. So thank you for that. Uh, 
grounding us a little bit. We Cub fans who got a little too carried away with how spoiled we've been. Uh, Lincoln for the ages. Your wisdom knows no bounds. And as an Indians fan too, I, I would love to see my tribe win. And maybe this year. I don't know though. Yeah, and, and it, you know, it really shouldn't have been as heartbreaking as it was. Rajay Davis had no business hitting that home run. Mm. That's just ridiculous. Mm. Listen, that game should have ended in nine innings. I blame our oldest Chapman for causing stress, shaving years off of both teams' fans' lives. <laughs> Mary or Nick, did you have a social media post? Uh, yeah, sure. I'm scrounging through them. You got yours ready, Mary? I do, yeah. Okay. Um, so mine is also Lincoln Belongs oh, to Oh, look at that. Yeah, you can tell we don't today, talk about these things because we just use, you no. know. Um, because today uh, is the anniversary of when Lincoln had some very famous photographs taken at Antietam with McClellan. Mm. And they are actually some of my favorite photographs from the Civil War because they're so telling with the body language of McClellan and uh, Lincoln Belongs They just did a great job of tweeting. I think there's six of them that he tweeted, but just the, and I tweeted a couple of them too, but um, he tweeted all of them. And just looking at the body language of not only McClellan, but Lincoln is just so, it's very telling. And there's photos with uh, Pinkerton, who was a detective who, um, he had a detective agency but he also inflated some of the uh, General Lee's Army's numbers when he took the intelligence back to McCollin. Um, but he, I, like, I just, the, the photos are so iconic and I was really happy to see them all tweeted out today for everybody to see because it's, um, you know, they're some of the most iconic photos come out from the Civil War. Yeah, I agree. And um, what I really like about those photos more than others is that um, obviously they show battlefields, uh, Lincoln had a battlefield in a very unique way, yeah. which is very fascinating, but I think they show Lincoln's height. It's one oh, of the yeah. few pictures of him actually standing and like, they really do show his height. I was just kind of staring at one the other day, just today, like, wow, that really, like, it really shows not only his height, but like how much taller he was than everyone else. So I, well, I think that's yeah, very cool in that regard. The one picture where he's got his hand on the chair and he's kind of standing upright. McClellan is like, he's back. And he's got his chest kind of puffed out. And um, I'm reading this um, book right now. It's a new book about Antietam. And um, it actually, I tweeted the quote earlier tonight, but it talks about how McClellan used to say that he's like, oh, I'm 5'9". He was actually a bit shorter than that. <laughs> so he used to kind of inflate his own height a little bit. So I think there was a little bit of a Napoleon complex going on there. Um, but yeah, that picture is bit. one of my favorites. Yeah, it's a little bit. Um, just the way he's like, he's just would just, I would love to know what exactly they discussed. Yeah, I agree. Nick, what do you got for us? Uh, I'll go with, uh, a shout out to, uh, president Jimmy Carter, 94th birthday was two days ago. So awesome. Stacey Abrams, um, tweeted out wishing a happy 94th birthday to president Carter whose leadership as a humanitarian governor and president has made our state prouder and our nation brighter. So 94 years old, still helping build houses with Habitat for Humanity. People drive all over the country um, to meet him on Sundays to go to, I, I think it's like a Bible study class 
Um, there was an interesting article about it. So Jimmy Carter's still rocking it at the great age of 94. So, um, yeah. Uh, and I'm really glad you brought that up, Nikki. Jimmy Carter is a hero of mine. Um, I think that he is tragically, tragically underrated as a president, not just as a person, because what a, what a great, great human being. Uh, totally selfless public servant and at 94 years old, continuing to be an example for all of us. Um, and really, I think, uh, a great example of how someone can be a humanitarian and a leader and true to themselves and um, definitely breaks down stereotypes about deeply religious people from the South. He is, he is a man that is purely of love, and I think that there's a lot of folks like that in the world, uh, but he is a great example of that. Um, and I just worry, man, 94 is getting up there. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, you know, unfortunately I think we're, you know, we got to face the facts that we might lose Jimmy Carter pretty soon. Not soon, but you know, relatively speaking, World War II vet, you know, Naval Academy graduate, all that, everything. Anyway, so Jimmy Carter, happy birthday. Thank you, Nick, for bringing that up for our This Week in Lincoln, which is an example of Abraham Lincoln showing up outside the general usual context of history and historic books. We're going to go back to that t-shirt shop. I was at next door to the Lincoln Herndon Law Office. We have a t-shirt where they took the iconic uh, Pink Floyd Dark Side of the Moon album and they replaced the moon with a top hat. And there's a ray of light going into the top hat that is refracted into a rainbow. I'm sure you're all picturing the very famous album cover of the prism. Um, So it's a really cool kind of graphic. And I, I really like it because... It just kind of shows, like, you don't need to say, there's no text that says, this is an Abraham Lincoln parody of a Pink Floyd album. Like, you look at it, and all it is is a top hat and a rainbow, and the viewer's like, oh, and yeah, cool, Lincoln, Pink Floyd, I can dig it. Um, so, Do we, like, like those two iconic images. It. Yeah. Do we know if it's Lincoln's top hat or not? Because <laughs> this is an important thing. We'll have to do some DNA testing on the, uh, on the screen print process that they used. <laughs> Uh, to make the shirt. So anyway, very cool shirt. Uh, so if you're in the neighborhood, uh, check that little store out. They've got a treasure trove, and we've got even more this week in Lincoln's from that very store. Um, we've stockpiled them in a, in a little bit. Uh, so any parting thoughts, Mary or Nick, before we leave our audience for another week? I do. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, to our Canadian real splitters, I want to say happy Thanksgiving. This weekend is Thanksgiving in Canada. And I just also want to say how thankful I am for all of our listeners on here and to be part of this podcast. It's been an amazing experience and great journey. And I am looking forward to what the future has. And I'm just thankful for, for everybody. Wow. Thank you. Uh, I guess I'll maybe do have to wait till November to return your thanks <laughs> in the United States. We will say thank you in November. No, uh, thank you. That was uh, very nicely said and happy Thanksgiving. Enjoy your time uh, with your family, Mary, and to all of our Canadian listeners, happy Thanksgiving. Um, thanks to Abraham Lincoln. Our Thanksgiving will be in November, but I think it's nice to take some time for it. So I'm glad you were able to do that, Mary and uh, everyone in Canada. Enjoy that holiday. Uh, here in the states uh, many of us have monday off for indigenous people's day that's what i call it 
I don't change my mind. I'm not going back to the other one. Uh, but anyway, those of you who are off on Monday, enjoy your holiday. If you're in Canada, happy Thanksgiving. For Railsplitter Mary and Railsplitter Nick, I am Railsplitter Jeremy signing off for another week and reminding you to continue to walk the world with malice toward none and charity for all. And we'll see you next week.